And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everyone to Podcast 47. This is our lost show, the show that would have happened when I was gone in Georgia. (laughs) Jimmy Sweets was in good spirits because the Dodgers were in the World Series. And they might be again. They might be. So we're taking together scraps of the show that never was and adding a few more other things and making a new show out of it. A baseball show. Except for we have one thing that's not baseball, and that's the ghostly hand. A scholastic scary bookstory. But also there's a lot of variety. We have clips from the Joey Bishop show. We have novelty songs about baseball. We have a Telly Savala's ghost story about baseball. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. So I say D, I say D-O, D-O-D, D-O-D-G, D-O-D-G-E-R-S, team, 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 oh, I say O-M, O-M-A, O-M-A-L, O-M-A-L-L-E-Y, oh really, no O'Malley, Sandy Koufax, oh my Drysdale, Maury Wills, I love you so, and we defy Defy the J-I-J-I-N-J-I-N-T J-I-N-T-S Giants Playball Orlando Cepeda Is at bat with the bases jammed Orlando Cepeda With a wham, bam He hit a grand slam in the very first inning But it's only the beginning In the third, like a fight We get to one and away Then fairly hits into a double play Here comes Big Frank Howard Yes siree Boy, what a swing Strike three Odem B Odem B-U B-U-M B-U-M-S them bums, them bums, them dry bums. Oh, they may be bums, but they're my bums. Top of the fifth, say hey, Willie Mays hits a three-bagger down the right field line. But he's out trying to stretch it to a homer as Roseboro tags him on the bottom of the spine. With the crack, you can hear all the way back up to San Francisco. Open your hospitals! Inning six, Maury Wills draws a walk 
In the coach's box, Leo DeRocher, Leo DeRocher, starts to wiggle and to twitch. A signal? No, an itch. Go, Maury, go, Maury, go, go, go. Maury goes, the catcher throws, right from the solar plexus. At the bag, he beats the tag, that mighty little waif. And umpire Conlon cries, you're out! Out? Out? Down in the dugout, Alston glowers up in the booth, Vince Scully frowns. Out in the stands, O'Malley grins, attendance 50,000. And what does O'Malley do? Ah! Bottom of the ninth, four to nothing, last chance. Push the button, oh, we're pleading, begging on our knees. Come on, you Flatbush refugees. Maury wills at bat, hit it for me once. Stu Miller throws, Maury bunts. Cepeda runs to feel the ball, and Hiller covers first. Haller runs to back up Hiller, Hiller crashes into Miller. Miller falls, drops the ball, Conlon calls, safe. Yay, Maury! Gilliam, up. Miller grunts. Miller throws. Gilliam bunts. Cepeda runs to feel the ball and Hiller covers first. Haller runs to back up Hiller. Hiller crashes into Miller. Miller falls, drops the ball. Conlon calls. Safe. Yay, Conlon! Willie Davis gets a hit and Tommy does the same. Here comes Mr. Howard with the chance to win the game. Hit it once. Big friend bunts. Cepeda runs to feel the ball, so does Hiller, so does Miller. Miller hollers, Hiller, Hiller hollers, Miller. Haller hollers, Hiller points to Miller with his fist. And that's the Miller, Hiller, Haller, hallelujah twist. The Davis' score is four to four. Howard's still running the bases. From second to third, it's almost absurd. Amazement on everyone's faces. He's heading for home, he hasn't a chance. The poor nut is gonna be dead. But the ball hits him right in the seat of his pants. And he scores. That's using your head. So. So. I. Say. D. I say D-O. D-O-D-G-E-R-S. The team that's all heart. All heart and all thumbs. They're my Los Angeles. Your Los Angeles. Our Los Angeles. Do you think we'll really win the pennant? Now, what I'm about to tell you is true, if you want to hear it. I do want to hear you it. You do want to hear it, then I'll tell you. I was never superstitious. I'll give you a ride. But then something happened in my life which scared the hell out of me. And for something like that to happen to me, is something that I can't understand to this day. God knows how many years ago. Let me think now. 58, 59. It's a lot of years ago. Now, I just left off a date. Beautiful young girls since left us. And it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going home to Long Island after dropping her off. And as would happen, I ran out of gas. And, uh... 
I go into this white castle restaurant. I says, is there a gas station open? He says, yeah. He says, you walk through the woods there. He says, get on the, the, the Grand Central Parkway, take it to the Cross Island Parkway. He says, and the gas station there open all night. Okay. So I start walking through the woods, a wooded area, not the woods, going up. And as I'm doing that, I hear a voice say, I'll give you a ride. I turn around. And there's this guy in the Cadillac. And I didn't hear the Cadillac. You hear the voice. And uh, what do you see? I see a guy in a white suit. And uh, I hear an effeminate voice. He say, I'll give you a lift. I said, that's very nice. I said, I'm going to a gas station. <laughs> we get to the gas station, talking very nice. And uh, I'm fumbling around in my pockets. He says, I'll lend you a dollar. Well, I didn't ask him for money. And the truth is, I was broke. And I said, well, look, I says, you know, I've worked for the State Department. And well, anyway, give me your name and address, all right? Allow me to mail it to you, because I'm very embarrassed. Anyway, I go there, I get a can, pay for the gas. And we start driving back to my car to put the gas in the car. And I thought that was very nice of him. And then in the clear blue sky, he says, I know, I'm not going to mention the name, I know so-and-so. And it's a baseball player. We weren't talking baseball. Oh, I said, who's he? He says, well, he's a utility infielder for the Boston Red Sox. Oh, it's so bizarre that he would say it in the spookiest voice I ever heard. He kept driving, get to my car, put the gasoline in. He pushes me to get it started, pushes me to get it started. My car starts. I thank him very much. All in all, it's a very lovely experience to meet someone to help you out like that. No incident whatsoever. Go home, go to work in the morning, get out in the afternoon, this headline in the then Journal American. So-and-so, dead. The guy he mentioned in that very spooky voice, age 20-some-odd, young ball player, under very mysterious circumstances. Um, autopsy and all that stuff. I said, God, what a frightening coincidence. I go home and I says, hey, Ma, isn't that funny? My mother, I think, was part witch. I explained it to her. She says, well, yeah, Telly, strange things that do happen. I said, but, but, but. And then I remembered that he gave me a piece of paper for me to send the buck to. I look at it, and there, besides the address, is a telephone number. Okay. Pick it up, and I call the number. Jimmy's Bar. Oh, I said, well, can I speak to Mr. Cullen, please? Oh, Mr. Cullen, just a minute. Woman gets on the phone. Who's calling? Hi, hi. May I speak to Mr. Cullen, please? He's not here. Well, when do you expect him? Who is this? I says, well, I, I was with Mr. Cullen last night. He gave me this telephone number, and he said I could reach him here. She says... Look, you son of a bitch. I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about my husband, and he's been dead for two years. Uh, anyway, I wouldn't let it go. I did get in touch with the woman again. I did meet her in New York. She came down from Boston. Because, you know, this is a little too much. The clothes I described were the clothes he was buried in.
the piece of paper that he gave me sound, signed James Cullen. She brought a letter that he wrote her when he was in the army. It had Jimmy on that. Outside of that, the signature is identical. There was only one thing that was different. I said uh, he had a high voice. She said, oh, no, 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 she said. He had a deep voice like yours. Oh. Then it meant he killed himself. This way, right through the voice. Box, whatever. What's up, it's Dubney Music. Make sure you guys subscribe. All right, let's get it. Yeah, Dodger Blue, baby. Hey, yo, Philly. How do you kill a bird with a bat? <laughs> we ain't tripping off no Cardinals, no Red Sox, no A's, no Tigers. It's all about that World Series ring. It don't mean a thing if you ain't got that ring. Tell them, yo. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. LA Dodgers, now we here. It's the young hog, Yasiel Puig. Come to the plate, get a city what it needs. Trying to make a scene at Chavez Ravine. One big swing to bring LA to ring. Bleed Dodger Blue, Tommy Lasorda. I think I saw the old man walking on water. Hey y'all, I'm on Crenshaw with Clayton Kershaw. He got the Cy Young who wanna play ball. It got tragic, I called up magic. And everybody know that magic flipped the cabbage. I pop bubbly with Vince Scully. It's so lovely to win in 2013. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. LA Dodgers, now we here. LA Dodgers, now the whole team here. On with a dozen cat. Yeah, all blue snap, bandana with a mirror at. Exit off the five magic, put the city on the map. Picture like Ryu, I hit it like Matt. Ball so hard, went pro. You can find me at the last Kingstone Melrose. You can either hate it or love it, killer, leave me alone. I beat the king, so the thrill never gone. Two on, killer. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. LA Dodgers, now we here. LA Dodgers, now the whole team here. We want to uh, give you a little inspiration. See that gentleman right there? His name is Irving Tyken. He lives in Leisure World, Laguna Hills, celebrating his 105th birthday today. 
They tell us he works out daily in the gym and he stood behind home plate got on the microphone and said it's time for Dodger baseball. God bless him. Although I guess he has had. Well this happened in the first of all started in Kansas City. When uh, Tom Sturdivant was pitching against us. And he had to shut out five to nothing. So suitcase Simpson come up and hit a home run. And Ida Slaughter hit a home run to make it five to two. And then he knocked a couple of guys down. He was upset that these two guys had hit home runs. So Boudreaux, Lou Boudreaux, our manager, he was kind of upset. He said, those Yankees, everybody gets intimidated by the Yankees. And also, I said, hey, not everybody. I said, they don't intimidate me. I said, that organization I came from, the Dodgers, we didn't fear anybody, but we respected everybody. He said, do you mean that? I said, yeah. He said, we'll go down and warm up. So he brought me in to pitch the top of the eighth inning, and the first hitter was Joe Collins, and I dumped him twice at two knockdown pitches. Got him out. Sturdivant was the next hitter. I dumped him twice and got him out. Now, Billy Martin was the leadoff hitter. I got him twice, and I struck him out to end the inning. Then I come out the top of the ninth, and Hank Bauer was the first hitter. This guy's tough. He had a face that looked like it'd hold two days of rain, and he was a Marine, and he was tough. So I had to dump him, too. So I dumped him twice, and I strike him out. And as they're throwing the ball around the infield, Martin is up on the top of the dugout step screaming at me, I'll get you before the year's out. I'll get you. I said, hey, banana, banana nose, you don't have to wait. Let's go. So he come out of that dugout, and I went off to that mound, and we had a pretty good fight. And I look over, and Bauer's trying to get at me, and he's throwing guys off him like they're little kids. I said, hey, Bauer, this is between Billy and I. I said, so now... Now I'm going to start when we go to New York. I'm going to start, and I'm going to tell you something. But let's get back to, to Kansas City first. Now Mantle was going to be the next hitter, and I was really upset. So I'm going to really, I'm not going to knock him down. I'm going to drill him. So as I'm walking back to the mound, I feel somebody put their arm around me. And I looked, and it was Mickey Mantle. He said, hey, Tommy. Look, those two guys are really struggling. They're both hitting a buck something. He said, uh, they're just frustrated at the moment. They said, but they're good guys. Forget about it. So I said, geez, that Mickey's a pretty good guy, you know? Well, I threw him a curveball, and he hit it off the left center field fence, standing at second base. He knew he had conned me out of what I was going to do. And I looked at him. I kept looking at him, and finally... He broke out and laughed, and <laughs> I said, I knew I should have gotten you, and he laughed. He knew that he talked me out of it. So now we go into Yankee Stadium. Now they're going to start me because of the battle, and that was the first time, first time, all of them come to bat with the helmets on. Hank Bauer was the leadoff hitter. He had a helmet. They put helmets on. They figured... If he's going to throw at me, they better wear helmets, you know. And uh, 
But uh, they got me out. Yogi Berra, Yogi Berra hit a ball on me right over the first base bag with two men on, second and third. So I pitched about, I guess, six innings against them. I gave up two runs. But the th whole thing about Yankee Stadium and the, and the Yankees, they were something special. They used to, uh, they used to uh, dress with shirt and ties, jackets, because they said, once a Yankee, always a Yankee. You're going to play for the Yankees, you've got to act like a Yankee. They always wore ties. They always wore sport coats. And they were a traditional. Traditionally, they were, they were the greatest. And here I was actually pitching in Yankee Stadium. And I had dreamt of that. And that's when you say dreams become a reality. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. From Norma Kramer's Scholastic Book, The Ghostly Hand of Spittlehouse. High on an English moor, there once stood an inn called Spittlehouse. What with iron bars at the windows, walls a foot thick, and steep stone steps leading to the oak door, chained and bolted inside, Spittlehouse looked more like a fortress than an inn. One stormy night in October, the innkeeper George Alderson and his son Bob had gotten safely home after selling their sheep at the fair in York. They sat cleaning their hunting knives and firearms before the blazing logs of the hearth. George Alderson glanced around the comfortable room. We beat the storm by a good two hours, he remarked to his wife, Margaret. And lucky we are to be home from the fair. What with the wind coming up and the rain pelting down, it's good to sit home warm and snug with our horses bedded down for the night. That it is, Bob agreed and grinned at his father. And it's good to have sold our sheep and have the handsome profits bedded down in our cupboard tonight. Mistress Alderson smiled at the men. And Bob continued, Since this is the sort of night cutthroats and robbers take for plundering the moors, I'm thankful to have a gun clean should there be need to use it. Master, mistress, I think someone's at the door. Shall I open it and see? Aye, lass, the innkeeper said. Though it seems late for a traveler to be battling this gale. As Bella ran to the door, Margaret Alderson paused at her work. Best leave the chain on, child, she said in a low voice, until you see who's there. As Bella turned the great key in the lock and slid back the heavy bolt, a feeble voice whispered, Hurry, hurry, in heaven's name let me in, lest I be dead on the doorstep. At a nod from her mistress, Bella dropped the clanking chain from the slot and peered cautiously. Before her, at the top of the steps, drooped a gaunt figure, leaning on a stick. The hood of the stranger's cloak completely hid the features save for two dark, piercing eyes. "'Let me in,' said the feeble voice. "'Tis a wicked night for an old woman to wander the moors.' "'Poor soul,' Bella thought.' 
supporting the stumbling stranger to the bench beside the hearth. A rest by the fire would do her a world of good. And yet, in spite of her concern for the bedraggled creature, the girl thought the body next to hers was remarkably firm and the voice deep for an old woman. Their guest sank into the bench with a pitiful moan, while George Alderson added a log to the fire. But when Bob sprang forward to remove the black cloak, the aged woman waved him away. No, no, rasped the hoarse voice, muffled within the folds of the hood. I want nothing but to sit here by the fire before I go on my way. Rest is all an old body needs. The poor soul was quite daft, Bella concluded. Only a witless person would forsake the chimney corner to wander abroad tonight. George Alderson, convinced that the guests wanted nothing but a nap in the warmth of the fire, drew Mrs. Margaret aside. It's late, he whispered. We might as well go to bed. The old one's mad, if you ask me. I wager a cold coin she'll be right here in the morning. As the Aldersons lighted their upstairs candles, Bella said, I'd best keep an eye on the poor one. I'll sleep down here tonight and lock up afterward if she decides to leave. Swishing at the ashes with her faggot broom, Bella stole a quick glance at the motionless hooded figure. The old one was sleeping, the girl decided. It wasn't until Bella reached down for the bellows that her heart almost stopped beating. The toes of a man's heavy riding boots showed from under the hem of the long cloak. This was no half-witted crone, but surely a robber, disguised in an old woman. Bella knew that she must not make a false move, not with the Aldersons upstairs and herself alone with this fellow. So she moved back and forth as usual, putting the room to rights, then scouring a copper pot on the table. The figure on the bench moved restlessly. When do you go to sleep, girl? The hoarse voice whispered. Right away, ma'am, Bella answered, untying her apron. Can I get you hot tea now you've had a nap? Nay, nay, croaked the voice crossly. The hooded head turned away. Then if you want nothing, the girl said, I'll build up the fire and fix my bed. Nights like this, my room's cold, so I sleep on yonder bench where it's warm. The stranger grunted but made no reply. Good night, ma'am, and rest well, Bella said. If you need aught, call loudly, she added, for I'm a sound sleeper that I am. Bella wrapped herself in her shawl and stretched out on the bench. Everything depended on her, her own life and those of the Aldersons. In spite of the way she was trembling, she had to convince the outlaw that she was asleep. Yet watch what he did. At first Bella tossed this way and that, but in a few minutes she found she could pretend to sleep. All she had to do was count slowly. One, two, to breathe in, out, in, deeper and deeper all the time. Bella narrowed her lids to slits so she could watch the stranger. Possibly an hour passed before he stirred. Then, apparently satisfied that Bella was asleep, he threw back his hood. By the flickering firelight she saw a long, pale face with thin, cruel lips and eyes that glittered craftily. 
Without any warning, the ruffian suddenly strode across the room, then stood staring down at her face. If Bella betrayed herself now, by so much as twitching an eyelid, he'd murder them all, she thought. Forcing herself to repeat over and over, in, out, out, in, Bella found she could still pretend to sleep. Only when convinced that the girl on the bench was asleep did the cutthroat return to the fire. There, from the folds of his cloak, Bella saw him draw forth an object so fearsome she had to stifle a scream in her throat. For the awful thing that the outlaw took from his garment and set on the table not far from the copper pot was the severed hand of a man long dead. If the scoundrel had seen Bella's face at that moment, he'd have killed her at once. But fortunately, his back was towards her as he bent to light a candle by the fire. When he turned about, Bella managed to breathe more heavily than before. Glancing sharply at her face, the man thrust the candle into the half-open palm of the hand and began to chant what sounded like a magic spell. Lock those who sleep in slumber deep, and yet more deep, O withered hand. Show us the spoil, direct your light to the treasure bright. Help our waiting robber band, lead us to the spoil this stormy night. Shine out, ghostly light, lead us, ghostly hand, reveal rich treasure to our waiting band. The candle flickered brightly. It would soon point to the cupboard, Bella thought desperately, and show where the master had locked his money. Whatever she did, she must act quickly. As a girl lay there, racking her brain for a way to warn the master, the man strode to the window. He pushed it open and gave a shrill whistle. So there were more cutthroats, and no telling how many, Bedela thought in panic as she heard the faint answering whistles outside. She must thwart the ruffian before the others got in. An instant later, Bella saw her chance. After shutting the window, the robber went to the door and turned the great key in the lock. As he swung the door open, Bella leaped at his back and gave him a thrust that sent him tumbling bumpity-bump down the steep stone steps outside. Bella watched him collapse in a heap on the ground and lie still. Now the girl slammed the heavy door shut, turned the key in the iron lock, and slipped the huge bolt into the slots. Last of all, she secured the heavy chain. That will keep you and your friends outside, Bella muttered grimly. Wait till the master peppers your hides with his bullets. Master, come quickly, the girl shouted. But there was no answer. Perhaps they didn't hear her. Bella thought and shouted again, loudly as she could. Come at once, master. Bob, robbers are here. Robbers, I say. But the louder Bella called, the more ominous was the silence overhead. And as to the horrible hand on the table... When she forced herself to take a quick glance at it, the candle was burning brightly, and now the flame pointed directly at the lock on the cupboard door. Snatching a candle, she flew upstairs, but when she held the light over the bed of the innkeeper and his wife, she found them sound asleep. The girl shook them and called out loudly. She even shouted into their ears, but she couldn't rouse them from sleeping. 
Dear heaven, what's the matter? Bella sobbed desperately, for by now the robbers were beating at the door. Bella ran to Bob's room, but the youth was sound asleep. It was only after she had doused his face with cold water and dragged him from the bed by his feet, and still he slept, that she remembered the robber's spell. Lock those who sleep in slumber deep and yet more deep. The ghostly hand in its evil spell, Bella exclaimed, anguished tears on her cheeks. If I can't find a way to break the spell, we're all lost. The robbers will kill us all. Without losing another moment, Bella darted down the stairs. When Bella reached the kitchen, she found the candle burning brighter than ever in the withered hand, and the massive outside door shivered and shook under the robber's battering kicks. Frantically, her eyes searched the room. She must find something to put out the flame. Outside, the robbers bellowed. Let us in, witless one, if you know what's good for you. Open the door before we sliver it to kindling wood. And as for you, the voice muttered, threateningly and low. If you don't open it once, we'll slice you up as you slice a mutton joint. And then, bang, thud, crash. Bella blanched with terror as the furious blows at the door made the copper pot bounce on the table. The copper pot! Perhaps she could extinguish the candle with that. In desperation, Bella grabbed the pot and turned it over the candle and the dreadful withered hand. Almost immediately, the candle sputtered, then sizzled and sighed. But the hand under the pot flopped, so it took all of Bella's strength to hold the pot down. Master, Bob, get up! The robbers are here! But now there was no need to rouse the men, for almost before she'd opened her mouth, she heard running feet overhead. Then a window slammed. Weapons rattled on the floor. Bella wept with relief. She'd broken the spell, but the hand still jumped and rattled under the kettle. You down there, Bella heard George Alderson thunder. Get gone at once before every man of you has a hole in his skull. Warning shots followed, then curses, threats, and in the midst of the hammerings and poundings, there were screams and groans. As the ruckus raged on, she held down the pot, sick with fear, lest the thing pop out. At the height of the battle, Bella heard the familiar voice shout, We'll leave to the last man if you'll give us the ghostly hand. And that's likely, Bella muttered, pressing down so hard that her arms ached for the hand under the pot gave a sudden wild flop. But the girl grinned when she heard Bob growl. This is what I'll give you. Then followed a blast of bullets and screams of pain. In the ensuing silence, limping footsteps dragged away. Now George Alderson shouted from overhead, Bella, Bella, are you all right? He leaped down the stairs with Bob at his heels. Child, where are you? He kept calling. Are you safe? I'm safe, Master, Bella called back, though she still shook all over. But please, can Master Bob fetch the parson at once? What in the world? asked the innkeeper, stopping short at the sight of the pale girl holding down in the pot. It's the ghostly hand, said Bella nodding towards the overturned pot. It's still now, but I best hold on till the parson comes. With the Aldersons about her, Bella related the terrible events of the night. She told of the dreadful thing she held captive, of the robber's spell and the burning candle. We'd all be murdered but for you, said Mistress Alderson, embracing Bella. 
George Alderson gave her a handsome reward from the store in the cupboard. It's your part of the treasure you saved for us, he said warmly. When the parson came, he called her the bravest lass on the moors. He carried away the ghostly hand, and once the parson laid the severed member to rest in holy ground, people say, no one ever saw the ghostly hand again. I'm a working girl Just trying to make a living And each evening I start work at 10 p.m. In a room they call a parlor But there ain't no sweet grandfather And no player piano pumping out a hymn I change into an outfit Kinda scanty And I fold up all my morals for a while And for my fingertip massage You can use your master charge I'm no bona fide masseuse But I got
took to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs, the bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. If he hits the ball on the ground, I would imagine he would be running 50% to first base. So the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. Fouled away. He was, you know, complaining about the fact that with the left knee bothering him, he can't push off. Well, now he can't push off and he can't land. He's going to use all arms. Look at his crowd on its feet. What a tribute. Four three A's. Two out ninth inning. Not a bad opening act. Mike Davis by the way has stolen seven out of ten. If you're wondering about Lasorda throwing the dice again. And he's standing on an outside corner. He's not going to give him a ball to pull. He, with Davis, he just missed. But here's two quick strikes, both fastballs. that kind of tail away the outside part. Hassey is not even flirted with the inside part of that play. You saw Dave Duncan gesturing. He was gesturing to Carney Lansford at third. Oh, and two to Gibson. The infield is back with two out and Davis at first. Now Gibson during the year not necessarily in this spot but he was a threat to bunt. No way tonight no wheels. <laughs> They're plenty deep in the outfield and a lot of room. They're playing him straight away in center field. Look at it right down the line. He's a threat now with two strikes. No balls, two strikes, two out. Little number foul. And it had to be an effort to run that far. Gibson was so banged up, he was not introduced. He did not come out onto the field before the game. You can really see the limp. Uh, he's not driving that ball. It was by him. Let's see. He's really almost. He almost has to talk to his legs and say, "Hey, let's go. We got to get out of here." It's one thing to favor one leg, but you can't favor two. No way. And that's what he's trying to do. He really is. Oh, and two to Gibson. Ball one, and a throw down to first. Davis just did get back. Good play by Ron Hassey using Gibson as a screen. He took a shot at the runner and Mike Davis didn't see it for that split second and that made it close. A lot of times what you do you'll give a sign to the first baseman say now be there. They call it now be there play. If I get the ball I'm going to throw it. Fourteen fastballs in a row. That's all he's been throwing. There goes Davis and it's fouled away. So Mike Davis who had stolen seven out of ten and carrying the tying run was on the move. They wanted to give Gibson a good shot at it with two strikes but with the two strikes Davis a threat as we said 
because the blue pin will score that big run. Gibson shaking his left leg, making it quiver like a horse trying to get rid of a troublesome fly. Two and two. Mike Sosha can only sit now and sweat it out. He let off the inning and popped up. Tony LaRusso is one out away from win number one. Here's the big pitch. He's got to make it happen on this one. Two balls and two strikes with two out. Those extra steps that Davis will get if the count goes to three and two are very big. So Hassey and Eckersley want that pitch of decision right here. There he goes. Way outside. He's stolen it. Hassey started to throw and kind of bumped Gibson, but it was way too late. Davis was way down there, almost as if he could have walked in. Not a bad pitch to handle for Hassey outside. Now watch when he starts to throw. Look at Gibson. And Harvey says, no, no, he had the base stolen. So Mike Davis, the tying run is at second base with two out. Now the Dodgers don't need the muscle of Gibson as much as a base hit. And on deck is the leadoff man, Steve Sachs. Three and two. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. was could he make it around the base paths unassisted 
I tell you, there are those who say that it's what happens after the base on balls, but it's the base on balls that makes it so bad. A home run would have tied it, but the walk gives him the win. And Eckersley, who doesn't walk that many, really gets burned here. Watch Lasorda. You know, I said it once before, a few days ago, that Kurt Gibson was not the most valuable player, that the most valuable player for the Dodgers was Tinkerbell. But tonight, I think Tinkerbell backed off for Kurt Gibson. And look at Eckersley, shocked to his toe. They are going wild at Dodger Stadium. No one wants to leave. Rest assured, my father wanted to leave. That's right. I was at that game along with my father and with my two sisters and two cousins. Uh, it was obviously the event of my lifetime as far as sports goes, but... Uh, as Vin was saying, he said, uh, nobody wants to leave. Well, my father always wanted to leave. And so we made our way out into the parking lot and promptly waited 40, 45 minutes to an hour before uh, we could get uh, untriple parked in our old green station wagon that we had taken to the game. How I got to the game in the first place is kind of a funny story. Um, my dad was a huge Dodger fan and I too am a huge Dodger fan and we uh, knew uh, some people that had season tickets and he was able uh, to go with them it was his best friend and a, a lot of times uh, you know we would get tickets and go down there but you know it was unheard of for a World Series and of course I begged to go and, and he decided that okay well you can go the first game and it just so happens that the first game was by far the best game it was uh you know the Kirk Gibson home run game and uh if anybody doesn't believe me I have the tickets so you guys can email me at uh sisg6000 uh at gmail.com and I will be happy to send a picture <laughs> of those of those tickets but just uh humor me and think that I was there you know a lot of people say they were there but I definitely was there I was 12 years old and uh, it was a magical, uh, crazy experience. The stadium shook uh, like an earthquake. And uh, just nobody could believe it. It was just un unbelievable that Kirk Gibson, for one thing, could even, you know, stand and even go up to the plate. But uh, it, was, it was an amazing thing. And everybody was standing, and I could barely see. And we ran back and forth up the escalator to see on the television uh that they had in front of the game in front of the uh the concession stands and then I ran back down and uh he hit the home run and I saw him fist pump around the bases and we were right behind home plate on Loach and uh it was a miraculous and amazing experience and so I'm glad that you guys um anybody that's a sports fan or a baseball fan has heard that that call from Vin uh but I wanted to play it again just because we're, you know, this is the baseball episode in honor of the Dodgers getting back into the series again. And uh, just share a little bit of the memories uh, from 
from that game. I, I might have mentioned it before, but I I did have the the memory of uh, that game too. Nancy Reagan threw out the first pitch, and uh, she we were up getting ice cream in the third inning, and they walked her by, and the the uh, the uh, Secret Service looked directly at me and goes, "Don't go out and and uh, try to shake the first lady's hand." He thought I was shifty, but uh, old Jimmy Sweets kept it cool. And uh, anyways, uh, it was a great memory, and I I just unbelievable. And now that the tickets in that area that we set are going for like four thousand dollars, I uh, imagine just how crazy or realize just how crazy uh, that experience was. And I I have to thank my father wherever he is up in heaven. Thank you, Dad, and uh, go Dodgers. Believe it or not. With the jangling of camel bells comes the Caravan of Truth, featuring Robert L. Ripley and presented by that new taste sensation in breakfast cereals, Huskies, spelled H-U-S-K-I-E-S. The new whole wheat flakes with that different flavor, the favorite cereal of leading athletes in every sport. Yes, sir, at the training table, at the breakfast table, Huskies eat Huskies. And here's that nimble, non-pareil of narrative, that never-failing notable of numberless, nerve-wracking, natural news nuggets. Believe it or not... Bob Ripley. Greetings, <laughs> oh, everybody. Hey, Bob. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before you go one bit further, I want the answer to that, believe it or not, that you started last Friday night and didn't finish. Yes. The one about the barrel of dimes and the barrel of quarters. Oh, so you've been worrying about that one, have you? Yeah. Well, which would you rather have, a barrel of dimes or a barrel of quarters? Why, of course, Bob, I'll take the barrel of quarters. Wrong, Ford. <laughs> Wrong. A barrel of dimes equals $96,536. And a barrel of quarters equals only $87,975. Believe it or not. Gosh, Bob, I lost over $8,000 on that guess. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have an old friend here with us tonight. He's a member of those world champion New York Yankees, which today lead the New York Giants three games to one in their battle for the World Series title. Just this afternoon, by hitting a home run in the ninth inning, he passed Babe Ruth, establishing a new record of 34 runs driven in in World Series competition. And here he is, Larrup and Lou Gehrig, star first baseman of the New York Yanks, the Iron Man of Baseball. Right from the ballpark to the microphone. I'm glad to see you, and congratulations on that home run. Thanks, Bob, and I'm glad to see you. Say, Lou. With the way the series is shaping up now, do you think there's any chance it'll go seven full games? Well, Ford, those Giants are a fighting club, but if we can have Gomez in the box for us tomorrow, I think we'll win that championship. Mm, with Lefty Gomez on the mound and you and the rest of that murderer's row in there slugging, the Giants have their work cut out for them. But say, Lou, switching from baseball to another topic for the moment, I understand that your manager, Christy Walsh, has arranged with Saul Lesser, the movie producer, for you to star in a picture in Hollywood. Is that right? Half right, Ford. I'm going to have a pretty good role, I guess. But as for being a star, that's another thing. It's pretty tough to make the big leagues in Hollywood. Well, Lou, if you play in as many movies as you have baseball games, you'll be a star, all right. And you can keep in shape out there, too, if you'll start off the day by diving into a big bowl of, uh, huskies. <laughs> that's a real load off my mind, Ford. <laughs> 
Because seriously, I do go for Huskies in a big way. They're the best tasting cereal I ever ate. And I guess I've tried them all. Well, thanks, Lou. And good luck to you. <laughs> Friends, you just heard Iron Man Lou Gehrig tell you how he goes for Huskies, the new whole wheat flakes with that new and different flavor. Well, Lou is the only one of scores of great athletes who say, Huskies are tough. So why don't you take the advice of these star athletes in all fields of sport and try Huskies yourself? You'll like their new and different flavor, and you'll find that Huskies are rich in food energy and help build bone and muscle, too. Twenty years ago, a broken arm, uh, I broke it in the ball game, put an end to my baseball career, so I took up the next best thing, cartooning. And with a roll of drawings under my arm, I went to the office of the old New York Globe and asked for a job, and I got it, fortunately. But the first man I met in that newspaper office was Sid Mercer. He is today one of the most widely read of all baseball writers, and he's been my friend since that day. I've invited him here tonight to meet our next, believe it or not, Sid Mercer. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Miss May Arbo, the Iron Woman of Baseball. Thank you. Uh, Lou, come over here. I want you to meet the, uh, uh, the Iron Man of Baseball to meet the Iron Woman of Baseball. Thank you, Mr. Ripley. Good evening, everybody. Bob, at the end of this season, Lou Gehrig had played 1,965 consecutive games of baseball in 12 years. You call Miss Arbaugh the Iron Woman of baseball. Why? Well, she was the greatest of all woman ball players. Some of the fans may remember her under the name of Carrie Nation, captain of the famous Boston Bloomer Girls. And Sid, listen, during the 33 years of her active career, she traveled over 400,000 miles, played in... 6,486 games with a lifetime batting average of 370. And that's some record for a bloomer, though. Well, Bob, I've got a record in bloomers myself. Me, <laughs> 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 Lou, but all is forgiven. Forget that. <laughs> Lou, I think Miss Arbaugh plays your position. At first base? I thought you were a pitcher. As a pitcher, I'd make a good dishwasher. And first base is a soft racket. You ought to know. Now, now, come on, Carrie Nation. That first base is a hot corner. Are you a good hitter? I was never the, in your class. The only home run I ever made was downhill. But I hit the lo longest baseball in this baseball history. How far did you sock it? The ball went 2,000 miles. While playing in Chicago, I hit a line dive right into a freight train. That ball went to Colorado. Ow! I asked for that one. <clears throat> well, don't worry, Lou. Just twenty more years, and you'll be uh, you'll be up to uh, to miss uh, our ball's record. And thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We've just presented Miss May Arbaugh, who has played more baseball than any other player, man or woman, in the history of the game. Believe it or not. Hold on, Mr. Ripley. Yes. One thing you left out. I want to say. 
I won't say how many years ago. I hope you won't. <laughs> but you pitched a game against me in Santa Rosa, California. Uh, uh, Santa Rosa, my old hometown, but I, I knew you'd bring that up. I'm sorry. Uh, don't forget, I got two hits off of you. Believe that or not. Maybe oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I went into newspaper work. <laughs> and again, I thank you all. Miss Arbo, Lou Gehrig, and Sid Mercer for being with us tonight, believe it or not. <laughs> still hangs in the balance between the champions of the American and National League. The score now stands Yankees 3, Giants 1. And in both leagues today, you'll find Huskies, the new whole wheat flakes, winning the pennant at the breakfast table and at the training table. On the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Tony Lazari, Monty Pearson, Jake Powell, and Red Rolfe. On the Giants, manager Bill Terry, Harry Gumbert, and Jimmy Ripple. One and all, they say, dish me up a bowl of Huskies every time. So friends, take a tip from these star athletes and try Huskies yourself. You'll like the new and different flavor toasted into those crisp, crunchy whole wheat flakes. And you'll find that Huskies are rich in food energy and help build bone and muscle, too. What's more, Huskies are the biggest value in whole wheat flakes your grocer can give you. So try Huskies, H-U-S-K-I-E-S, in the big 10-ounce box first chance you get. Join the Huskies who eat Huskies. And now, here's a special announcement. Jack Haley... The comedy star of the movie Wake Up and Live goes on the air over most of these stations immediately following this program with the first broadcast of his new comedy show. With Jack Haley, you'll hear Wendy Berry, Virginia Verrill, and Ted Fiorito's band. So keep your dials tuned in for Jack Haley. <laughs> about another problem, believe it or not, hmm? Okay, all right, if you like them. You know, what city is so large that an airplane flying at the rate of 200 miles an hour will require seven hours to fly from one end to the other? Oh, Bob, you can't tell me that any city is so large that it would take an airplane going 200 miles an hour seven hours to fly from one end to the other. I do, and think it over, Ford, and if you can't figure it out, I'll give you the answer next Saturday night. Columbus made his great search for a new world, he expected to find the king of Japan in America, so that he could identify himself to the Japanese king, Queen Isabella gave him a passport dated Granada, April the 13th, 1492, to present to the, the king of Japan or any other king that he might meet on the way. And on behalf of the makers of huskies and myself, let me quote to you the concluding sentence of that historical passport. And may divine providence open to you the door to grace, good health, perfect prosperity, and comfort of the soul. Attention, folks. In just a few seconds, you'll hear over most of these stations the opening broadcast of Hollywood's newest comedy star, that lively, laudable, lovely, lunatic of laughter, 
Jack Haley. So keep tuned in. I was uh, right after we beat him in 1981. My brother-in-law lived in, in Tampa. So we're driving along. My brother-in-law's driving the car. We pull up to a traffic light. And then the, to my right in the car, the guy had a Yankee hat on. And I let the window down. I screamed at him, take that hat off. You ought to burn it. That hard. We got him this time. And the light turned green and went. Well, about three months later, we're in spring training. We go over to play the Yankees. I get off the bus and here comes Steinbrenner running. He looked at me and he said, don't you ever talk like that to my driver again. <laughs> I said, what? How, out of all those cars, I had to pick his driver. So he made a big thing out of that with me too. But I'll tell you something, I, I, you know, George... A lot of people dislike George, but I tell you, I liked him. He wanted to win. That's all he did. He wanted to win. And when he didn't win, he felt very bad about it. Now we have a recording from the Joey Bishop show where actual Dodgers, led by Don Drysdale, sings their version of High Hopes. It's a, it's a fun little tidbit. Before we opened in Las Vegas, Mr. Sammy Kahn was very kind and gracious and wrote for us a parody on his hit tune, High Hopes. I should like to now call out my very dear friends and have them do for you their version of High Hopes. Fellas, uh, Moose, can I see it for a moment? I don't want the other guys to hear this. This is your big chance. I hope so. It will be, believe me. They sing the song. When they get to the last line, the last line goes, Kerplop, okay? Mm-hmm. When it gets to Kerplop, I'll cut them off. You'll have a paper bag, you'll break a bag, you'll be a smash. Where's the paper bag? It's off stage. Where's off stage? Right over there. <laughs> okay. Don, would you mind starting this, please? When they all said that the Dodgers was dead, that's when we came to life and charged ahead. Words in their bats they would drop. Oops, there goes another batter. Oops, there goes another batter. Oops, there goes another batter. Oh. I don't want this to come as a shock to you, but you're supposed to blow it up first. I didn't tell you because I'm a doggone fool. That's you, why I didn't tell you. You can say that again. Good. Get <laughs> ready to do a second chorus. Okay? This is a good chance. Take your time. Take your time. We'll be off the air in a minute. That's it. All set? Sorry, Don. Would you mind? Second chorus? Then came the yanks like a thunder. 
Chances could mean your own television show. In color? In living color. think about it. I think that is very, very bad for that man to make an accusation like that. That is terrible. I have never, ever, since I've managed, ever told a pitcher to throw at anybody, nor will I ever. And if I ever did, I certainly wouldn't make him throw at a 130 hitter like LeFay or Bavacqua, who couldn't hit water if he fell out of a fucking boat. And I guarantee you this, when I pitched, and I was going to pitch against a fucking team that had guys on it like Bavacqua, I sent a fucking limousine to get the fucker to make sure he was in the motherfucking lineup because I kicked that fucking ass any fucking day in a week. He's a fucking motherfucking big mouth, I'll tell you that. It looked extremely rocky for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood two to four with but an inning left to play. So when Cooney died at second and Burroughs did the same, a pallor wreathed the features of the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go, leaving there the rest with that hope which springs eternal within the human breast. For they thought if only Casey could get a whack at that, They'd put even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, and likewise so did Blake, and the former was a puddin' and the latter was a fake. So on that stricken multitude, a death-like silence sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and the much-despised Blakey tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and they saw what had occurred, there was Blakey safe at second and Flynn a hug and third. Then from the gladdened multitude went up a joyous yell. It rumbled in the mountaintops, it rattled in the dell. It struck upon the hillside and rebounded on the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the battle. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. 
and when responding to the cheers he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the crowd could doubt twas Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then when the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance glanced in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on the stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stand, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult, he made the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, strike two. Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and the echo answered, fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lips. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel vengeance his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there's no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. I love this place. Sometimes I sit here and I can't believe it. Blue heaven on earth. And that's what I think. I used to say, hey, if you want to get to heaven, you got to go through Dodger Stadium. I'd like to be buried under the pitcher's mound. And when some little old left-handers out there struggling, He'll hear a voice, slow down, son, concentrate. You can do it. You've got to believe in yourself. And he'll look around. Someone's talking to me. Where? Who's this guy talking to me? It'll be Tom Lasorda underneath that pitching mound telling him to slow down. You can do it. Now, first year I was out here, the Dodgers are in the World Series against the Yankees. And right way up on the top, up there, is where they put the scouts. And I said to my wife, this is in 1963. I said, honey, you see that dugout over there? Yeah. One day I'm going to be in that dugout managing the Dodgers in a World Series against the Yankees. She laughed. 14 years later, 1977, Tommy Lasorda was named the manager of the Dodgers in that dugout in the World Series against the Yankees. The chicken scared me. 
He used to go out in the field and stamp down and smash Dodger helmets and everything. I caught him coming into the, I was going into the clubhouse and I caught him walking, I put my hand on his throat. I said, there's my hat, crush that hat now. Come on, crush the hat. He wouldn't crush it. I said, yeah, next time you do it out on the field, I'm gonna grab you right here and your eyeballs are gonna pop out. So that's my encounters with the, with the what do you call them? Mascots. I believe in the Dodgers and I believe in the greatest country in the world. Then I wore the uniform, it said on it, USA in the Olympics. And I took 24 guys and I told them when I first met them, we're gonna to go to Australia and we're gonna bring that gold medal back to the United States where it belongs in baseball because baseball is a birth game. It doesn't belong to the Italians. It doesn't belong to the Koreans. It doesn't belong to the Japanese. It belongs to the United States of America. And by golly, those youngsters played their hearts out. So we brought the gold medal. To see those young men play their hearts out, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I didn't get a medal. Coaches don't get the medals. But you know something? I got my medal when I saw him put the medal around my players. I got my medal when they stood up on that stand. I got my medal when they played our national anthem. I cried. I cried because I really felt that I had done something for my country. USA. Well, that's it. Hopefully we've done enough uh, superstitious things and mixture of things to let the Dodgers win the World Series for the first time in 30 years. Here's hoping the Dodgers go all the way. Frank, we got one more thing as always. What is it? Well, we can't have the Dodgers without Jackie Robinson. And so we have a stolen base by Jackie Robinson and an interview with him by Dick Cavett. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. With pinch batter Frank Keller at bat. Robinson dashes for the plate. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver. But Yogi Berra doesn't think so. Jackie Robinson has been called the most uh, exciting player of his time. Baseball fans remember with particular pleasure his ability to drive pitchers wild uh, by just sort of standing on third base and threatening to steal home faster than you could say uh, his name, probably. He's the uh, man who broke the color line in baseball in 1947. Seems like a long time ago. He's a member of baseball's Hall of Fame, of course, and he's uh, left baseball and become a highly combative man in a number of areas and fields. Um, and uh, speaks his mind. Will you welcome, please, Mr. Jackie Robinson. Is it possible that it's been a quarter of a century since you first played in the major leagues? I can't believe yeah, I guess I can believe it. It's, a, it's on the books, isn't it? It's every bit of that. It seems a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. Did you think things would come as far as they have? 
did you ever think it might not work? Well, there were times, certainly, when we thought it wouldn't work, but with the numbers of people that helped, yeah. we certainly thought that things would go as they have now, and even a lot further in terms of the front office and the managerial role and that kind of thing, but certainly baseball has got, got grown considerably, and we're quite proud of the role that we played in it. It's incredible now to think of a sport that big that was all... Uh all non-black. Yes. I mean, uh, so many so, uh, black stars in baseball now. Well, you can't even count them today. I, it's amazing to me. I keep reading about certain ball players, and I, one day I look on television, and he's black. There's no longer a mention of Joe Blow, Negro ball player, this kind of thing, which is as it should be. I think they should be judged solely on their abilities out there, and the race shouldn't have anything to do with it. But they always used to, of course, they mentioned it for several years. It, it was like, an, and, and in this corner, and a credit to his race on radio, they always used to say that, and that way you knew. Right. Uh, no, no white man was ever a credit to his race on radio. It was always, <laughs> always black. Uh, there must have been tough times. Uh, well, obviously, there must have been tough times. But I often wonder how you got what temper you have to have under control at the time. So weren't things yelled at you? And Oh, there were a number of things, but uh, I worked for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Ricky. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him, I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's, uh, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Brent Not enough Ricky. people are willing to do as Mr. Ricky did. What, did. what advice did he give you, though, about when you get out there and somebody's going to yell? Well, what was yelled at you? What kind of things well, <laughs> you name them in terms of race, and they were yelled. Everything it was quite vicious. I think it's Philadelphia Phillies. With Ben Chapman was perhaps the most vicious of any of the people in terms of name calling. The team members? Some members of the team, but there was a fellow by the name of Lee Hanley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there and apologized for the Phillies. He just says, I just want you to know all of us don't feel that way, but it's been led by the manager, and many of the guys are doing it simply because of instructions, I would have to imagine. But it did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say he's awfully sorry. And, and actually what they did was to sort of solidify the Brooklyn ball club because... Mr. Ricky told me one of the things he said early was that when your ball club starts to take up for you in certain situations, our battle is most of the way won. And, mm -hmm. and I think that Philly incident started the Dodgers to kind of mold as a unit. Was that the worst, Philly? Yes, yeah. Philly was the worst. Uh, yeah. Ben mm -hmm. Chapman was quite vicious. He wasn't only vicious as far as black people were concerned. I think he was anti-everything. Mm -hmm. so Where is he today? <laughs> God only knows. Yeah. Uh, did, um, but the team members, was this while you were on, when you came onto the field that they would yell things, or was it while the game was going on? I mean, could some of it have been just strategy to help Well, they thought, I, I was, I'm sure that a lot of it was thought to be strategy, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, it wasn't going to upset me. There was really too much to be done at that particular time in terms of breaking the baseball barrier to allow uh, name-calling to bother me. I keep remembering what my mother told me when I was a kid, although I've always been a guy that turned back. She said something about sticks and stones will break your bones, you know, and so mm -hmm. not to be concerned about it. Well, I didn't at the time, uh, and fortunate for the advice that uh, I got from Mr. Ricky and the, the encouragement and the guidance I got from my wife at home, we were able to, to withstand most of the kinds of situations that came up. We were prepared because of the numbers of people on our side. Yeah. I've heard that some of the uh, players since 
have felt guilty about not supporting you, that people have come up and said, I wish at the time I had uh, been well, a little braver or something. Well, like I that. think Carl Erskine, who, in my opinion, probably had the most understanding of the whole situation, he was mm -hmm. quite concerned. Uh, in Roger Kahn's book, Boys of the Summer, he, he points out that he would feel awfully guilty when we'd go into a restaurant in the South and all the white fellows would be able to go in and sit down and eat and the rest of us would have to sit in the bus and wait for a sandwich or something to be brought out to us. And he was guilty that he didn't participate more. But I, I, when I think about guys like that, I have to think about lending a helping hand. The Pee Wee Reese's, for instance, a Southerner. And I, I really believe that it was the Southerner on our ball club that, that made the Ricky experiment much more of a success than anything else because I, I'm sure that all of their lives had heard that there was a great deal of difference between blacks and whites and when they started to associate with us and they found out that all of the things people said that you use the same locker rooms, the same showers, the same facilities, something's going to happen they lost that fear after a short time and they became I guess as aggressive in terms of the success as anybody of course, I feel a little good, too, about Dick, because all that time was happening. Nothing was happening to me either, you know. So yeah. while they had their fears that things were going to happen to me, to them, yeah. I, I felt good because nothing was happening to me as well. So it made it kind of an even kind of a situation. But the whole situation in, in breaking the barrier was done simply because we had a purpose in mind to go out and win. Mm -hmm. and, and first it was Montreal. Then you moved into a town like Brooklyn. And it was just fantastic way the fans responded and reacted. They were a great bunch of people, and I've always been a very appreciative for the support and guidance that we got from fans as well as from Mr. Ricky and the family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talking with Jackie Robinson, one of the most remarkable athletes, and uh, you're into so many other things now. You're doing it. What is the Jackie Robinson Construction Company? Well, we formed a construction company about five months ago with a fellow by the name of Arthur Sutton over in uh, New Jersey. Uh, one of the things that I've always felt was if we're really to solve our problems, we, we've got to do it interracially. We, we broke the barrier in baseball on an interracial basis. And Arthur Sutton, when he started talking about the construction business, we, we felt very strongly that if we could work it in the same manner we did in baseball, Arthur being a white fellow and, and Kaya Sales and I being the blacks in the organization, that we could help if we would be successful. And we're quite pleased that the construction company now is pretty much off the ground and we'll be doing some building in Brooklyn in the Bobby Kennedy uh, area that they tore down and built. We just feel that it's important to have an interracial construction company. It's important to have a black company in these times because there is a tremendous void. The is the construction union one of the worst? For, uh... Well, yes. But I, I believe that there are a lot of black subcontractors who have gel together and mold together and uh, they're beginning to develop a system where they can break this thing down. And I think the unions are beginning to understand they've got to do it as well. I see black construction workers in New York. Um, well, is, it, is it rare? Well, it's, I'm not aware. It, 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 I just it's, don't know. it's opening up. A few years ago it was quite rare, but I mm -hmm. think pressures, and this is what has to happen, a lot of pressures have been applied to the different unions and, and they are opening up, but the construction people themselves are, I think, understanding their responsibility in terms of progress in this country. Could people be cooperating with you because it's an election year or am I reaching for something. Well, no, you're not reaching for anything. I, I think the reason why we uh, have been tremendously successful is it could be uh, 
an election year, we've gotten awfully good support from Washington. Uh, Mr. Nixon uh, and the Republicans and the power of the blacks down there, from John Jenkins at Omby and Bob Brown, who's the, uh, the assistant to the president, right on down through the FHA, have been of great assistance. And they tell me they've gotten okay from, from Mr. Nixon to go ahead and do it. And in spite of the fact that we've been considerably critical of Mr. Nixon, uh, we have gotten the, the, the support. Governor Rockefeller, the Urban Development Corporation, I would have to think that this is perhaps the most, uh, the UDC is perhaps the most powerful agency in the country. The what? The Urban Development Urban Corporation. Yeah. They, they, they are going to develop and build housing because of the tremendous need, and I think they're going to do it in low and middle income areas. And if we can put people in decent housing, give them an opportunity to feel secure. I think this is the answer to most of the problems today. Kids don't want to go home to lousy housing where there are seven or eight kids to a couple of rooms and have to sleep in shifts. And so they're in the street. Next thing you know, they're in trouble. If they give them decent housing, and I think it could help give them the kind of inspiration that's needed. Do you care if I ask you about anything at all? Anything you like. Well, uh, your son Jack was killed in a car accident right. not too long ago far back, and, and uh, well, there's a great amount of splashy publicity about his drug problems and all. Well, he did, Dick, have a very serious drug problem prior to his accident, yeah. but we are quite proud of the fact that our son, in spite of a very serious heroin problem, overcame it. It yeah. took three tremendous years of his life, and it took a lot of work on our part, but I think love and understanding did it for us, and we were extremely proud that Jackie did overcome it and his automobile accident had absolutely nothing to do with drugs. Mm -hmm. He was working hard on a drug on a uh, jazz program so that he could repay Daytop in some way for the work that they had done in helping him re rehabilitate himself. And um, my daughter came up from Washington and David had just come home from Stanford and we thought we'd all get together that evening and uh, for dinner, but Jackie had, on uh, that Wednesday, taught a, a drug program every Wednesday evening. And instead of coming home that night, as he said he was, to visit with Sharon and David and myself, my wife has gone to uh, our uh, convention up in Massachusetts, and so that the four of us were gonna get together at home. He went back up to New Haven, and uh, when David uh, found out he'd gone to New Haven or didn't come home at 10 o'clock, he told Sharon to go on to bed because Jackie would be coming in very late. And he was just exhausted, and um, I checked for my own self to, with Kenny Williams up at Daytop to find out about Jackie, and he says, the one thing you can rest assured on, he was cle clean as far as drugs were concerned. So I've left it there, I'm perfectly willing, because, uh, I think it's one of the most difficult things that we have today, and I think our federal government is putting its priorities in the wrong place. When our youngsters have so many rocks in our heads and forms of drugs, we're sending people up to the moon, spending billions to get people up to bring rocks home for the moon and just a minute amount of money here on Earth to help our young people. And if this country is to survive, we've got to deal with that drug program because it's pretty obvious, at least as far as I'm concerned, that every youngster in this country, in one way or the other, unless we do something about this problem, is going to come into contact with marijuana or heroin or some kind of drug in some kind of way. And unless we change our priorities, unless we put a great deal of emphasis on helping our young people, I just can't see the drug pro pro problem diminishing in the way that it should. And it is, to me, the worst problem that we have in this country today, mm -hmm. even worse than the race problem.
Have you spoken to your friends in Washington about trying to get more done about that? Well, we thought that uh, when we talked to Bowie Hewn, the commissioner of baseball, and Joe Reichler, that something was going to be done more than it is. I think baseball and football, when they go out and send their kids or out to the, on television and say, this is the way I'd like to rack up the drug program, you know, it means absolutely nothing because 99% of the kids who are involved in drugs aren't looking at that program, and it doesn't <laughs> touch them. It doesn't mean a thing to them. But I, I would certainly have loved to have seen baseball because the kids today are the, the, the fans in the stands tomorrow, you know. If baseball could have put on a game of, for the drug program to build an institution to help these kids, now I think they're making a concrete uh, contribution to, to the problem. So while we've talked to them about it, certainly not, a great, not enough has been done. New York. New York does more in terms of drugs than the federal, whole federal government does. And I think there's a recognition here in New York in terms of the drug program, more so than there is in the rest of the country. Perhaps it's because we have the greatest problem, but certainly there more has been done. Mm -hmm. I don't say it's been that successful, but more has been done than anything else. Yeah. Well, we will be back right after this message, our local station. Jackie comes to bat, the other team is through. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Did he hit it? Yes, and that ain't all. He's so old. Yes, yes, Jackie's real gone. Jack is real gone. 